There's something in the human spirit that I think God has placed there that is a yearning, profound desire to make a difference, to leave a mark, to leave a legacy of some kind. And I think it is one of the greatest and most important keys of the gospel and our response to God in our day and our generation. I've seen it in every age range over the years. People who don't want to live lives of indifference, but who are passionate about different things, different contexts, different issues, different situations, and long somehow to make a difference in the world. I think that is a God-given desire. I think it is a God-ordained desire. And it's something that I want to reflect on tonight with you. I wonder how many of you feel it. You might have a, a deep yearning to make a difference around the climate. Our world is facing a crisis. Like, I don't ever remember growing up seeing some of the stuff that we're now seeing, bushfires and, um, and, and devastation in one part of the world and massive flooding in the other at the same time. And those of you that um, are younger, perhaps are sometimes more passionate about this than those of us that are a bit older. Maybe it's because you're going to live longer and you're thinking about the planet that your children or your grandchildren will inhabit, but there's a, a rising tide of people who want to make a difference in the world and to see us guard and look after our planet more carefully. I wonder if some of you are those people. I know some of you are because you've talked to me about it. Some of you are passionate about people who have been um, oppressed, controlled, manipulated, or sold. Which of us here in Northern Ireland was not profoundly moved by the latest story of 39 Vietnamese people killed and uh, found dead in a refrigerated lorry? They were trying to reach a new life. They were Many of them had sold themselves into bonded labour in order to do so. And they were found in Kent dead. Many years ago, I was involved in finding a movement, a, a campaign called Stop the Traffic, that it looked at issues of human trafficking. And um, many of you here will be passionate about that. Others will be passionate about seeing poverty eradicated in your community, in your street, in your country. You might have a particular uh, people group on your mind, on your heart. You might be passionate about seeing injustice eradicated somewhere in the world or in, here in Northern Ireland. Some of you are passionate about that, about seeing our communities finding a way through and a better future and a, a, a greater and stronger hope. As a Christian... I think that all of those passions and desires are rooted in the God of justice. The God who describes himself as a God of justice and who wants his people to be a people of justice and who promises that if we will let him, he will take our little lives, our small and apparently inconsequential contributions and change the world with them. Do you know it's the desire to see young boys being given a break that causes some of our BB officers to volunteer in the BB 
or our GB officers to volunteer in the GB, or our leaders in our youth ministry on a Friday night 412 to volunteer there, or our, children, our children's ministry leaders in arrows and little arrows to volunteer there. It's that desire to make a difference in the world that causes some of the folk that help in our parent and toddlers on a Wednesday morning to help there. It's not just this great, big, grand design idea about becoming a global figurehead that changes the world. It's about you and me wanting to make a difference where we are, to see the world made a fairer, kinder, better place. And I think that's a laudable aim. I think it's, a, it's, it's something to be celebrated and welcomed. But if you root all of that in yourself, then eventually you'll hit a wall. And what do you do when you run out of energy? What do you do when all of your kindness is used up, when the bank deposits of compassion and mercy have dried up? Where do you go? As a Christian, I don't think that we should root our desires for a better world in our own vain glory, in our own ideas, but instead, if we root our ideas, our commitment to this better, fairer world in God himself, then we will be rooting our lives in a source that will never run dry, in a vision that will never dim, in a hope that cannot be extinguished. Some of you are teachers. You might teach children with additional needs or children that are um, part of a, the, the wider life of Northern Ireland society. And you do that because you feel called to that. Just as much as I feel called to being a preacher, a pastor, and a leader. Some of you are physiotherapists. Some of you are nurses. Some of you are doctors. Some of you are businesswomen and businessmen and teachers and professors and lecturers. Some of you are graphic designers. Some of you work in a whole range of different areas. But if you are a Christian, then where you work and what you do is part of God's call for your life. And through what you are there, not just here, God's kingdom can be extended. His name can be uplifted. And what you do with your life matters. I want to reflect with you for a few minutes on this remarkable invitation by the God of justice to become a people of justice. By the God of compassion to become a people of compassion. By the God of mercy to become, a God of, uh, to become a people of mercy. And there are a few dangers that we must avoid on this track. But tonight, if you're listening to me online or you're here in this room and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, then consider this God who promises to transform this planet, who never misses an injustice, who sees every unfairness, and calls those who follow him to be a source of life and hope in their communities and in their world. Consider this God who will one day right every wrong and put everything right and hold every person accountable for their actions. And ask yourself whether he is worth considering now on the 17th of November. Worth following, worth serving, worth honoring and worth giving your life to So one of the first questions that we have to wrestle with when we think about issues like this is whether justice matters at all. Some of you that have been Christians for a long time might think, oh, well, Malcolm, what matters is seeing people go to heaven when they die. 
What matters is reminding people that and that alone. That is only part of the gospel story. However, there is a fundamental mistake that is made by many Christians today when they come to thinking about justice, compassion, and a better society. Here's the mistake that they make. They think that they can build a better society on their own. They think that they can build a fairer, more equitable world on their own. You can't. None of us can. When we get to the end of all our activities, all our plans, all our ideas, all our programs, and everything else that we think we can do, it will not be enough. There's another mistake that many Christians make. And that is the mistake to, that, to think that when you have shown compassion, when you have served the poor, when you have challenged an injustice, you have shared the gospel, you haven't. The gospel in the New Testament is a very particular and a very closely defined thing. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, wants the people that are listening to him to understand what the gospel is. And here is what he says. And do not forget this gospel that I gospeled to you, that I shared with you, which was of, as of first importance. I pass on to you what was passed on to me. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried according to the scriptures. And that on the third day, he arose, he rose from the dead. And he appeared to the apostles, to the 12, and then to uh, 500, and then to me, like someone born out of due season. Paul roots the gospel in this simple reality. Christ died for our brokenness. He died for our shortcomings, our failings, our mistakes, our errors, our confusions, our shame. But be careful that you read the Bible properly when you read of what he died for. Listen to these two verses. One, both written by the Apostle John. One, as a, as a younger man, perhaps 60, 60, 50, 45, 50. The second, almost 90, probably, when he wrote it. The first is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. As an older man, John, writing to a church in Ephesus, wanted them to understand something of the power of this gospel. And here's what he says in 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. What happens in Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross and is resurrected three days later is not a pietistic personalized salvation plan it is the moment that brings the possibility of transformation to the world to every community every brokenness was laid on him every sin every shame every heartbreak every injustice 
Not just yours and mine. The world's were laid upon his shoulders. And he carried them so that the world could be transformed. There's not a person in the world for whom Christ did not die. His gospel, his life, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy and his grace has the power to transform you. You know that. But have you considered that the cross has the power to transform the world? The community that you are part of, the society that you live in, the world that we share, God's power has the capacity to transform that. A little later on, we will talk about those areas where God will change and and transform the world. And I can summarize it very simply. Everything. You should be excited about that, but never mind. It is hot in here after all. He will make all things new. What is excluded from that sentence? What injustice does he not see? What hurt does he not notice? What sorrow is he not aware of? The good news is that Christ has borne it all. He has taken your punishment and my punishment and turned away the wrath of God and brought hope. He has changed the outcome if we will let him. What a remarkable thing. Let me read part of the Bible to you tonight, just for a moment. This is a psalm. I want to think with you about the connection, first of all, between gospel, good news, what Jesus has come to do, and justice. What is the connection? Why am I even talking about it tonight? Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God all my life long. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. When Jesus Christ announced his public ministry... He did so in a synagogue in a place called Nazareth. It was where he had grown up. The story is recounted in Luke chapter 4 from verse 16 on. He quotes from a prophet called Isaiah, who in chapter 61 of his um, prophecies outlines what God wants to do. And this is what we read in that powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news 
to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. That's a powerful prophecy and promise by God that this anointed servant that he will send will change the way in which people are treated. What is the greatest injustice in the world, do you think? Is it the injustice of the rich oppressing the poor? Is it the injustice of the educated taking advantage of the uneducated? Is it the injustice of white dominating black, men dominating women? Is it that people are trafficked? Is it that the climate is being destroyed? Is it that wars rage across the earth? Are these the greatest injustices? Well, they are all great injustices, right? But they're all rooted in one common injustice, which is greater than any other injustice. And that is when a human being is treated as less than the person who is oppressing them. The greatest injustice of all is the injustice that is carried out when one group of people see another group of people as less than them. It's that injustice that God is intent on reversing. You can go to seminars and hear people talking about injustice in lots of different ways. Christians telling you about this campaign and this program and this great idea, and they're all fantastic. I've been involved with many of them for many years and will continue to be. But the theological root of injustice, the sociological and anthropological, in other words, society's injustice, the way human beings act unjustly, the way religion acts unjustly, is when a human being is treated as less than a human being by another human being. That is in Isaiah 61 what God says he has come to reverse. The oppressed will be oppressed no more. Why? Because God will release them from their oppression. The poor will not be treated as less. Why? Because God never saw them as less in the first place. Every time the Bible talks about the God of justice in Psalm 146, in Isaiah chapter 61, in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 8, God says it again through the prophet Isaiah. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, there is this powerful image that is used, these this quadrangle of God's compassion around injustice. Write it down. Here is what God mentions when he says, I am a God of justice. I defend the widow. I care for the orphan. I have a heart for the oppressed. And the way foreigners and asylum seekers are treated matters to me. That's not my quadrangle. 
That's not a 21st century political ideology. That is deeply rooted in Hebrew spirituality. Injustice looks like a widow being mistreated, an orphan being abandoned, a stranger being rejected, and somebody that is oppressed being manipulated. And those four things, theologically, lead to every other thing. And it is those things that God says, I'm against that. And I want to raise up a people who are against that, who believe in something better and stronger and clearer and fairer. That is part of our response to the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sin and broken the chains that have bound us. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue in Nazareth, it's often noticed that he leaves out one of the verses. He doesn't mention that he will proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. Why? Well, many of you, if you are Christians and you've heard preaching over the years, will have heard this, something like this. Jesus doesn't mention that because that's what will happen when he returns again. That is not entirely right. He doesn't mention it because what he does at the end of his life on the cross is carry the consequences of God's wrath for us. He doesn't describe the vengeance of God. He doesn't come to break the vengeance of God. He comes to carry it. To release us from it. And there's the first or the second major difference between just being a justice-orientated do-gooder and a Christian who's committed to justice. The first difference is that we recognize that we will run out of our own energy. We will run out of our own strength. I mentioned it a few moments ago. We don't have what it takes to change the world. That's not defeatism. That is honesty. Those people that tell you that they can pray the kingdom in are reading a different Bible to me. Those folk that say all you need to do is announce it in Jesus' name and it happens, it's not what the Bible says. And on the other end of the theological spectrum, those social activists who say that they can bring God's kingdom in just by working really hard, that's not what the Bible says either. The Bible asks us to remember something. We are to give our lives to this. And yet our lives will never be enough. We'll never achieve it. We can't do it in our own strength. We'll run out of our own energy and we'll run out of our own ideas. The second great difference is this. Society roots these issues in cultural norms, in problems, in difficulties, in hassles, in complexities, in, um, in, in, in relational challenges, in, in identities, in stories that have gone on for years. We root them in sin. We root them in the fact that people oppress people. That one set of people take advantage of another set of people and we can't fix the problem we've created. The gospel fixes the problem that we've created. Because God carries the punishment for that selfishness and pride in himself when he pours out his wrath on his son so that his vengeance can be carried and as a consequence the world can be transformed 
What an amazing thing. Be careful that you don't create a Christian life which is simply a sin management system that gives you no purpose and meaning today, that gives you no definition in work or in what you do or who you are. Every part of your life when surrendered to this great gospel, when laid down for this great king, can bring hope and transformation on the planet. That's why when Jesus is talking to his followers at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says something which is remarkable. He says, even when you give somebody a cup of cold water in my name, you can bring about change. The in my name is important. Now here's the thing. And I know that this will be a challenge particularly for those of us that are used to uh, churches that focus a great deal on our gatherings and on our worship songs. And I love them. This is not a, a knock at those, in case you think it is. No hidden agendas. But that's not the end of your worship. Fighting injustice is an act of worship. Standing for a better world campaigning for a fairer society for the believer is an act of worship looking down at folk that are under 30 not that those of us that are over 30 don't matter give your life to something that's going to change the world don't give your life to a sin management system don't give your life to something that locks away the power of God from the world because we're afraid of the world. The church is not a fortress of faith that hides from the world. The church is the vanguard of the kingdom of God that pushes into the world with the good news that Christ has defeated sin with a mission placed upon us. When we respond to this gospel, we become partners in bringing goodness to the world. Anybody old enough to remember Stingray, the program? You can wave at me. Do you remember the theme tune? Stingray, Stingray. <laughs> stingray, stingray. And then do you remember what was said? Anything could happen in the next half hour. When the people of God allow the gospel of God to grip their souls, they become part of an army that wages peace. They become part of a community that welcomes the orphan and the excluded. They become part of a family that embraces the widow. And they become part of a citizenship, of a country, of a nationality that is open to all who trust in Christ. They become the living, breathing expression of the God of justice. Our lives declare to those that have been forgotten, you're not forgotten here. Our activities, our workplaces, our priorities declare to those that feel as if they've lost everything when they've lost their husband or their wife, there's a family here waiting for you. 
Our communities declare to people who have never known the love of a father or a mother or were rejected or caused to be brought up within a context of care or isolation or abuse or fear. There are good fathers and mothers here to show you love, to show you tenderness. Government plans will not change the injustice of the world. The United Nations cannot change the injustice of the world. All the greatest campaigns can't change the injustice of the world. It is the gospel that changes the injustice of the world. That gives the people of God this message that goes across every strata of society. There is hope and life and forgiveness and grace in the cross of Jesus. Oh, do you believe that? That's why Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 58 says something which is profoundly challenging that upsets many people. God is challenging the people of Israel to remember what true worship is. Listen to the words as I read them slowly to you. Shout out and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion. To the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast but you do not see? Why do we humble ourselves but you do not notice? And here is God's response to those two questions. Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day. And you oppress your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of injustice? To undo the thongs of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall quickly appear. Your vindicator will go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from amongst you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be a well-watered garden like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. What a picture! Transformed community, transformed lives, transformed despair into hope. When? 
when we roll up our sleeves and get involved in the pain of the world. And the consequence of that is that the presence of God will rest upon us when we gather in sung worship in ways that we've never experienced before. You see, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if you are Christians, this is not a question of either being people of justice or being people of gospel. This is being people of gospel who are driven to be people of justice. This isn't a question of either encountering God in power when we worship and sing or serving him in our communities. This is a question of encountering him here and serving him there and encountering him here and serving him there. The church was never called to withdraw from the world. The church was called to withdraw from those who claim to be Christians and are living worldly lives. There is a difference I recently read an article about a church in uh, Scotland who in the cold snap last year put sleeping bags on every pew and let folk come who were homeless and sleep in the building. That was an act of worship. I was sitting in my car just last week, Campbell, And I was reflecting on what would happen if Belfast has a really cold snap this winter. And I thought to myself, I don't know who was it, Rebecca, did you describe our sports hall as small? (laughs) I'm only kidding. I was thinking what would happen if there's a really cold snap in Belfast? Why couldn't we open that sports hall every night? and put camp beds on the floor and make soup and coffee and tea and love people. Why couldn't we do that? Could we not do that? I think we could do that. And I think this church would want to do that. Here's my dream. People also often ask me, what's your vision for Dundonald? I don't think it really matters, actually. I think God's vision matters more than mine. But here's here's what I dream. I dream that when anybody within the sound of this church faces a challenge or an issue and they say, who can help? The first thing they think of is us. That from seven in the morning until 11 at night, we are a house of hope. That we help people flourish. If you want to know what my dream would be for what justice would look like here, it would look like a breakfast club for kids that don't get fed at home every day. It would look like a nursery that could let kids come even when they can't afford it. It would look like believing in people, helping them to believe a better story about themselves, dismantling the lies that have been poured into youngsters because their mum isn't there or their dad isn't there or they failed an exam or they have additional needs and helping them to see that they are made in the image of God, that they are loved, cherished, accepted and forgiven in him and that there is a future for them. My vision would be that the special school up the road turns to us to ask us for help and we say, what can we do? But when there's a a youngster that goes missing or a man, just like happened recently, we open our doors and we move our schedules so that those people in this community that need help can get it. That we are careful about what we eat and drink and serve things from in this church because we care about the planet. That we raise up a generation of people who are peacemakers who are passionate about overcoming divides and living a life that demonstrates that there's a different future for people. 
that the Ulster Hospital doesn't only know us because they park their car in our car park, but that we uphold them, that we walk with them, that we serve them, that we love them, that when there's a campaign that honors life, whether it's at the end of life or at the beginning of life, you're first in the queue with your eyes lifted to heaven and your heart open saying, we care about people. But we are a community of justice and compassion and kindness and grace. And I tell you, that's not at the expense of encounter. When we encounter God, this is what we do. That we are people committed to ending the iniquitous practice of human trafficking in Northern Ireland. Amen? But we see in this congregation social campaigners and politicians and doctors and lawyers and economists raised up from our young people who choose their courses wisely and change the world for Christ, who take their positions in every strata of society with the power of the Spirit residing within them and the hope of heaven drawing them forward. I would want to be part of that community. That wouldn't be a boring community. It wouldn't be a restrictive community. Nor would it simply be a social action community. It would be a gospel community. When I was learning Greek and Hebrew many years ago, I was given the book of Amos to translate from Hebrew. My goodness, I made such a mess of it. But there was a section in Amos, chapter 5, that so profoundly impacted me 25 years ago, and it still does. Amos does something in his book written around 800 BC or thereabouts to help you understand the context. He is a southerner who comes as the man of God for the north. I'll just let that hang for a minute. That's how he describes himself. And he presents himself to, the other way around, I beg your pardon, a northerner who comes to the south. Some of you are more comfortable with that, but he's a northerner who comes to the south. And when he comes to the southern kingdom, Israel had two kingdoms. It had uh, ten tribes in the north and two in the south. And the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom didn't like each other. Familiar story? But what um, Amos does is he begins to identify, um, I beg beg, I ask your um, patience as I turn my back on you. He identifies the nations that are furthest away from the southern kingdom. And he starts to point out to the southerners what God is saying about the sins of Tyre and Sidon and Moab and Edom and how unhappy he is with them. And they love it. These people of God love it because here's the prophet telling them how everybody else is wrong. And he works his way around saying, for two sins God has judged you, for three sins he will hold you accountable. And he gets all the way around to the northern kingdom. They're arch enemies. And he he lambasts them. And these southerners love it. And then he says, but God has more against you. 
you're supposed to know better. And he says this, away with your love feasts, away with your songs, away with your celebrations, away with your special festivals. When you bring music to me, it sounds like something that's out of tune. I don't want to hear it. And then in Amos chapter 5, verses 24 to 26, God bellows with compassion from heaven. Let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. And the power of the call of God on the people of God lifts their eyes and causes them to think again about who they are and what they are called to do. And he has mercy on them. Let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Many years ago, I was involved in doing something in Washington. And when I went, somebody said, we have to show you the Martin Luther King Memorial. And it's a huge, huge marble semicircle. It's beautiful. And written across it, it says, let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Martin Luther King. And I turned to the person that showed me and I said, you realize that was not an original quote, right? He said, no, Martin Luther King said that. I said, he wasn't the first person to say that. Amos said it first. What would it look like for Dundonald Elam and the people of Dundonald Elam to be a community who longs for justice to flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream? Would that cause you to forget the gospel? or to be more dependent on it than you've ever been? Would that cause you to think we'll just be do-gooders or would it cause you to think we need the grace, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in everything we are and everything we do? Imagine a community where the broken are welcome, where the rejected are embraced, where the orphaned are loved. This was the call of God on Israel. Right back in Genesis chapter 12, I am blessing you so that you might be a blessing. We've experienced blessing in our church over these last couple of years. It's been remarkable, hasn't it? To see people getting saved lives transformed, people joining our church. You're not joining a social club. You're not joining a bless me club. You're not joining a community that is locked away from the world. You're joining a community of people who are called to be people of justice and compassion and mercy and grace, who carry the hope of the gospel in our hearts I've been involved in this type of ministry for years and years and years. And I have seen so many people fall by the wayside. So many Christian activists give up because they get tired or weary or discouraged or cynical. Do you know why I'm not cynical about this? Because I think this is what the church is called to be. And I look around this community 
I look around it tonight. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I see people who live this. They live it in their volunteering. They live it in their teaching. They live it in the commitments that they make with their finances and their time. They live it in the way they try to reach people in work. They live it in the choices that they're making for university. They live it in their dreaming. They live it in 412. They live it every moment of every day because we are not content to be a people that are locked away from the world. We want to be a people who shine in the world for Christ. And God is with us in this. He will not abandon us. But I wonder where you are tonight in it, watching online or in this room. Because this call to be a person who is engaged in the world in such a profound and impacting way would mean nothing if you yourself are not transformed. There's a deep injustice occurs when you write yourself off. When you say God couldn't use you, that you're too old or too young or too uneducated or too educated. God can use us. I wonder what your dream is for our church, those of you that are part of this church or the church of Jesus in Northern Ireland if you're part of his church somewhere beyond here. When your building is full, have we done it? Is the job done? When we build our extension and we fill it and God will fill it, is the job done? If every church in Northern Ireland was, every seat was filled, less than 15% of this community could get into a church. We're not ready for what God wants to do. Or is his job done on that last and great and glorious day when all things are put right and every injustice is overcome and every sin is squashed and every sorrow is done away with? So when you worship God now, when you pray with me now, when you engage in what we're going to do next, I want you to remember that God can use you, that your life matters. That your dreams and calling and aspiration and place in society matters. And that you shine brightest when you are closest to him. Why do I therefore want this church, our community, to be a bright and blazing community of worship, sung worship, of good teaching, of great fellowship? Because... We are called to this as much as we are called to anything else. It's not either or. It's both and. There was once a pastor whose name was Wilbur. And he looked after this flock. And he was a wonderful man. He still is, although he's not very well. I've never met him. I met his daughter in Port Stewart Baptist Church not so long ago. Wilbur Dempster, for those of you that are thinking, Wilbur, who is that? And he had a saying here in Dundonald. If you want to blaze somewhere else, keep the fire lit here. 
If you want to do something somewhere else, if you want to be strong somewhere else, keep the fire lit at home. I want this fire. Do you not? I want this fire to be ablaze with the power and the presence of God. I don't want to say it's an either or. I think it's a both and. I think as we are a community that are vibrant in worship, passionate about heaven and hell, committed to the truth of the gospel proclaimed from the pulpit, making disciples, celebrating the goodness of God, singing at the top of our lungs, releasing new songs, releasing new giftings, releasing new passions, seeing new ministries arise as we do all of that. We will see the impact of God around us. I don't want us to be weak at the center and strong at the edge, or weak at the edge and strong at the center. Why do we have to compromise like that? Why can't we be strong at the center and strong at the edge? Why can't we be unequivocally, unapologetically gospel people that are also unapologetically and unequivocally committed to seeing Northern Ireland being a better society? Amen? That's what I believe God's calling us to. A church that is on fire with love for God and love for the world. The Salvation Army put it this way. Heart to God and hand to man. Passionate about him and therefore passionate about others. Jesus put it much more clearly. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let's pray. We cannot, as you pray, be close to God and distant from our neighbor. cannot say we love God with one breath and hate our brothers and sisters with another. And I think God is present by the power of his Holy Spirit to do something profoundly in our souls and in our lives tonight. I think he wants to do some reprioritizing, reorientating around gospel and justice and changing the world. And I think he's birthing new passions in people. Some of you are getting a new passion for your workplace or you're thinking, you know, I am going to do it. I'm going to see my hands when I treat a patient as the hands of Jesus. My voice when I speak to a pupil, I believe will be the voice of Jesus Christ. My listening ear when I am a chaplain will be the ear of Jesus listening to the broken heart. My business venture will be for the glory of God. My desire to be a vet will be for the glory of God. I will do it for the glory of God. Across this room, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, Would you bless my sisters and my brothers who already know you and love you and want their lives to make a difference? From the mental health nurse to the medical specialists 
Let your spirit rest on each of us. We are not the answer. We are signposts to the answer. Let our lives reflect your glory. Let our actions point to you. And let this community be a community that shines brightly with the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Birth passion and vision and longing for your kingdom to come in this room and online by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now your eyes are closed and I'm doing this without any music behind me because I want you to think about the couple of questions that I'm going to ask. Don't think this is the bit where somebody else responds. My first question is to those of you that are Christians in this room. I think there are a number of us that need to say to God, I want this passion to make a difference, to be rooted in gospel. And I want you to help me to reimagine my life and my calling through the lens of your glory. I think some of you have been having hassles and difficulties at work because you've been standing for truth and it's hard. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. God has placed you there for his glory. And your ministry there is as important as my ministry here. And if you tonight, whatever your profession, whatever your job, whatever your apprenticeship, whatever your trade, whatever you do, if you tonight are saying to God, I want to blaze with your glory and I want to make a difference in the world from the BB to the GB to the Sunday school to the clubs that you're involved in to your workplace, your neighbours in your home. If that's you, no one else is looking. All I want you to do is put your hand up. Don't wait on somebody else. Just put your hand straight up. And keep it up, please. So many of you, thank you so much. Keep your hands up. I want to pray for you. I'm praying for those of you that are responding to this. Thank you. I've seen people respond that rarely make a public response, although often may or make a private one. This is for all of you that are responding. Lord, in your mercy, rest upon these people. My hand is raised with them. Let your power and your presence permeate our lives that we might blaze for you. Reorientate our imaginations, our priorities and our thinking that we might be women and men who carry the kingdom of God in our words and our actions and our decision making. Pour your spirit into your people. And give us grace and courage in Jesus' holy name. Please take your hands down, but keep your eyes closed. Is there anyone here this evening? And you are outside of God's grace at the moment. And you want to be a person who will see the world changed. 
You want to make a difference, but it's got to start with your heart. It's got to start in you, not just through you. And you need to get your soul right with the God who has called you to change the world. You need to begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You may not understand everything, but you understand that he brings God to you. He brings hope and grace and forgiveness to your soul. If you would like to become a follower of Jesus Christ and join the community that is his people, the church, then where you are when no one is looking, please just raise your hand and take it down again. No one else is looking. It's nobody else's business. I'll give you a chance. And if you're online and making that decision, please contact my colleague Pip at dundonaldelam.church and he will give you some information to help you. Thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in this place tonight. We commit ourselves to you and we offer you our hands, our feet and our imaginations. And we pray that you would use us for your glory. Amen.